Well, this morning, um, I want to read from another passage in the Old Testament, and I want to highlight this morning that the Old Testament is such a beautiful book. I mean, I know a lot of you know that, and sometimes the temptation is to uh, read the New Testament a lot, thinking the Old Testament is kind of uh, old and difficult. Well, it's not old in the sense, it's not old in that it's outdated. That's not why the Bible calls it, that's not why it's called the Old Testament, because it's outdated. It's just that it precedes Christ, it comes before the birth of Christ. And so the New Testament is from the birth of Christ. But the Old Testament is rich and it gives us so much to learn from and gives the New Testament a context. And that's really important. If you really want to understand the New Testament well, the Old Testament kind of helps understand the New Testament better. And uh, it has so many stories that uh, speak to our lives and are relevant to our lives and how we should build faith and, and continue in faith and continue to trust God and continue to hope in his word. And so this morning, there's a couple of chapters in the book of Numbers that I want to read. And I'm not going to get through them all today. Of course, I'll get through them, God willing, over the next two or three weeks. But it's it's, it's a real, it kind of almost highlights what I've been speaking and sharing about this idea of being called to be godly. It certainly touches on that. And it certainly touches on this idea that we don't want to just look godly. We want to live godly. And this is this is the most important thing for a Christian. Too many Christians have an appearance of godliness. That's not what God is calling for. That's not what God is asking for. He doesn't want you to be going around, hanging around with Christians and using phrases that Christians use like praise the Lord or I pray for you and have this appearance of Christian and only to find that in your heart you are defeated constantly because you continually give in to sin. And, and so what God is looking for is a person who is striving after holiness and he's experiencing the touch of his grace and the, the goodness of his love. And so I pray this morning that you're encouraged through the stories that we're going to read in the book of Numbers. And so we're going to read, uh, eventually we'll get through, God willing, chapters 13 and 14. And so today we'll just start chapter 13 and look at uh, what would be a familiar story to a lot of you, probably new to some of you. And I pray that uh, we understand, well, we come to an understanding more and more of what the Lord is calling us to be, not what God is calling us, if you like, to be called, but rather to be lived, not what we're titled, but how we live is more important. Now, to give you a bit of a context to this, um, this is Israel. This is This is God's people who had been, slaves in Egypt for a very, very long time. Now, a lot of you know the story of how God's people Israel were in Egypt, slaves, and then eventually God set them through free through the hand of Moses, but from the power of God. And, of course, we all uh, are familiar with the Red Sea, that part of that Israel then crossed the Red Sea and made their way into the wilderness and then 40 years of journey. Some people suggest, or it's been suggested, this passage of Scripture is only a only a couple of years into their journey, possibly, possibly. And what happened here was perhaps one of the reasons why their journey took so long, so much longer, another 38 years in the wilderness. That's quite possible. But what's more important is what happens here in this passage. What's going on here? What is God trying to teach us in the word? Now, we, we trust the word of God and we read the word of God to you because it becomes our foundation, doesn't it? This is our foundation. You don't go trying to create your own foundations of life. You don't go searching Google for all the philosophers of life so you can uh, um, bring together an eclectic form of philosophical ideas that you call your foundation. That's just ready to crumble. 
that's just ready to crumble. But God's word, God's word is our foundation. It's a sure foundation. And guess who sits at the cornerstone? Jesus Christ himself. He is the cornerstone of this foundation, the very thing that is necessary to make the foundation right. But I'm wondering, if the word of God is the only foundation, are you trying to build your life on some other foundation? Is the foundation that you're building on that you somehow think you don't need God's word or you only need it occasionally or, you know, sometimes you'll turn to it and sometimes you'll read it. Um, if that's the case, then tell me, what are you building your foundation on? Where are you going for foundation? What are you attempting to make your foundation? Is it solid? Is it guaranteed? Can you be sure that it's never going to crumble? Can you be sure that it's never going to collapse? Can you be sure that it's never going to be like sifting sand, the Bible says in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, where you build your house on a sand that when the storms come, guess what happens? The foundations crumble. And brothers and sisters, storms will come, whether they are the storms of life or whether one day the facement of judgment, they will come. And if your foundation isn't solid, then it's going to crumble. And great is the fall, Jesus said. But I encourage you this morning to build your house on a foundation that's never going to fall. It's the foundation of God's word. But more than just God's word, it's your obedience to the word of God. When you hear and obey the word of God. And I pray this morning that you don't take the word of God lightly. You may have read this story hundreds of times. But I pray this morning that you say one simple prayer to the Lord. Lord, speak to my heart. What is it that you want me to hear this morning? What is it that you want me to, to say? Uh, what was it that you'd like me to learn? this morning we've all learned lots of things through COVID I was just thinking as I was sharing with you and thinking before we've all learned lots of things perhaps one thing I've learned through COVID is to be able to is to, is to be able to preach standing in one spot that's not doesn't sort of come naturally for me or wasn't something that I used to do but I certainly be able to maybe I'm learning that to be able to preach in one spot until we go back and we can go and I can start walking around again but uh um, but we need to build a life, a foundation on the word of God. And I pray this morning that you are open to hear the word of God. So let's, um, let's read. And I just want to start with verse 1. Verse 1. And I want to read just some verses for you here in the scriptures. And we'll see how much we get through, how many we get through today. And the Lord spoke, uh, Numbers chapter 13, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, you might think, oh, why is he stopping here? That's a, that's a pretty simple verse. That's a pretty simple verse. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, okay, what does that mean? I want you to stop for a moment and think. This is a simple verse that can just we can just speed over. We can just skim over. But I want you to think about something quite profound here. The Lord's speaking. The Lord's instructing. The Lord is asking and is about to ask something of them. The Lord spoke and the people listened. And I wonder this morning if the Lord, if you know and you have experienced what it means for the Lord to speak, if the Lord has spoken to you. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, um, I've never heard God's voice. I've never heard God's uh, audible voice to me. Well, that's not what I'm talking about, of course. But the Lord speaks. 
And every time you read his word, or every time maybe you hear his word, the Lord speaks. And the question for us is, are we listening to this? Do we have, as Jesus said, ears to hear? Because the Lord is speaking. Think about it. The Lord is speaking all the time. When Jesus says, follow me, the Lord is speaking. When the Bible tells us love is patient, the Lord is speaking. When the Bible tells us to, to forgive our en- or to forgive the one who offended us, the Lord is speaking. When the Bible tells us to love our enemy, the Lord is speaking. When the Bible tells us to, to honour the authorities, the Lord is speaking. All these things the Lord is speaking, are we listening? Because we can say the Lord doesn't speak to me. I've never heard the Lord speak to me. But really, is that true? Is that true? God is constantly speaking to us. Jesus is our jubilee. He's constantly speaking to us. You've been hearing about the life of Peter on Thursday night. The Lord is speaking to us. These things that the Lord speaks to us, are we listening? These are instructions because God instructs us in his ways. Now, I want to ask you something. If the Lord asks us to do something, is he ever setting us up to fail? I want you to think about this for a moment. If God is asking something from us, is it ever so that we would fail it? Or when God requests something from his children, he knows and he intends that his children will always be victorious because he's asking something from us. He's requesting something from us. And the commitment that we make to his instruction or his request is always going to lead to victory because this is the Lord's command. This is the Lord's plan. The Lord doesn't request and says, come do this or come do that, only then to cause us to fail. He calls so we can succeed in him. He calls, but the the difficulty is how we lean on him or, or do not lean on him, how we trust him or we don't trust in him or we become self-reliant or or controlling rather than relinquishing control and depending on him. You know the anxiety that can cause you when you try and take control over things more than you ought to? Have you ever experienced that before? The level of anxiety that is heightened when you try and take more control that God is asking you to do? Yes, there is responsibility that you must take, but not control beyond your means. Think about though, I think about those in the church who are getting married soon. I think it's, if I'm not mistaken, four or five couples in the church that are getting married soon. Think if I was to speak to them before their marriage and say something like, this thing called marriage that God's designed, it's not gonna last. <laughs> That's miserable. What a miserable thing to say. But this thing God has called marriage, this thing that God has ordained. This thing that God wrote in his word and commanded the people to do, this thing that he allows two people to bring together and make them one, let no man separate his sins. This thing that he calls marriage, he speaks into this life called marriage and says, if you trust me and do things my way, it will always succeed. This is what God calls us to do. And the only reason that I can speak hope into the lives of those who are getting married or when people who are married come and want to ask me questions, the only reason I can speak hope is not because my marriage is perfect. It's because the word of God is perfect. And I believe that if we trust and do as God's word says to do, it will never fail. 
It will always succeed. Succeed doesn't mean the absence of suffering and trials. Success is what it is. It's trusting God and believing the outcome will be according to the will of God and to the glory of God. And so this is what God has called us to, to be uh, victorious in him. And if God calls us to something, and as the Lord is about to speak to these people here, he's about to call them to something. And because he's about to call them to something, they can, if they were willing, be reassured that they will succeed. It's like a story I read a long time ago about a junior tennis team. It was like a, just a young club, I think they were, and they had this one spectacular tennis player, amazing tennis player. And because this one person was in this tennis, tennis, tennis team, they always won. They just always won, you know. But take that tennis player out and they were back to ordinary again. That's what God has called us to. We are part of God's team, but the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, always leads us to victory. Not because we're good. We might think we're good tennis players. We might think we've picked up a few skills along the way, and we have and we do and all those sorts of things. But take Jesus out of the team, forget it. Forget it. You're uh, I am, we are most miserable. And so God is about to call his people to something remarkable. And just like God has called you into his kingdom, he's calling us to um, uh, trust in what he has said and to believe in what his word declares. Let's see what he does in verse 2. The Lord speaks to Moses and says, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. Listen to what the words he's saying here. I want them to spy out. It's an interesting uh, responsibility. Imagine that as a ministry. What's your ministry? I'm a Christian spy. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, um, a child of God who spies out the land. You know, he's, he's, he's asking him to spy out the land because he says, I'm going to give them the land. This is, the, this, is my, this is my promise. I'm going to give you the land. It's not even a question. There's no doubt in my mind. The promise I declare to you is a promise that will be fulfilled. All throughout scripture, it's the same. The promises of God are yes and amen. But we'll continue. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, every one a leader among them. Now, I love this because listen to, listen to what verse 2 is teaching us here. A couple of, of simple truths that I want to encourage you to think about. God is asking. This, this is God at his uh, a great relational way. This is the relational God being wonderfully highlighted in the scripture. God is asking him to spy out the land because, remember, they've come out of Egypt, they've been slaves, they entered into the wilderness, and they're heading for the promised land. And now, just before they get to the promised land, God is asking them to go and choose 12 men, one from every tribe, a leader, to go and spy out this land. Why? Doesn't God know what the land looks like? Does God need... Uh, his own secret intelligence? Does God need them to go out and, and, and to come back with, with the message of what the land is like? Because the God, God needs to set up his strategy and his, his plan of action? Of course not. 
God in his, his, his omniscient knows what, what the land is like, but it's now for the people of God to experience this. Now it's for the people of God to have their faith strengthened. Now for the people of God to observe and allow what they observe to, to strengthen them rather than to weaken them. God foreseeing what is about to happen and foreknowing the condition of the land and the people is not interested for himself, but he's interested for them. This is how relational God is. And God, as he works in our situations and works in our lives, he's not doing it so he can learn something that we are learning and we are growing and we are being strengthened in this situation. So he asks him to go, and, he's, and the Bible says, and to spy out this land so their faith is, is going to be strengthened. But he sends leaders. Interesting. There were 12 tribes of Israel, and he sent a leader of each tribe. Now, that's interesting because just because they were leaders, it doesn't mean they were soldiers. Just because they were leaders, it didn't make them warriors of war they were leaders now i don't know what kind of leaders he was looking for but i'm assuming they were appearing to be men of of faith or or men of maturity who who were called to go and spy out the land and we begin to get some insight now as to what god perhaps is doing among his people because it is of no value to be called anything if there's the absence of faith. Let people call you whatever they want to call you, a good man, a good woman, an amazing father, a fantastic mum. They can call you whatever they want to call you, but at the end of the day, the absence of faith is going to make what you do weaker and maybe even crumble. You're not striving, brothers and sisters, for a great name. You're not striving to have a great position. You're not striving so that the leaders of the church can pat you on the back. You are striving to become like Christ. And these men were chosen perhaps because of their appearance of faith to go and spy out the land that God is going to give them, what God was saying that God is going to give them. Now, I don't know how these men responded. Did all of them say, fantastic, I'm going to go spy out the land for my people and I'm going to go and, and do as God was saying? Well, some of them were saying, oh, you know what? Uh, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if this is possible. Was some kind of thinking, oh, man, I've got to go. I was, I was getting comfortable in my what I was meant to be doing. I don't know what these men were thinking, but they were called to do this. And, and I know that when God speaks into my life words of truth, there are temptations that can come to make me think, Lord, can I do this? I know. Have you ever said that to yourself? God is asking you to do something quite clearly in the word of God. He's spoken to you. He speaks words of truth. And the first thing that pops into your mind is, Lord, can I do this? Well, I don't know. I don't know if God's really concerned about whether you can do it or not. He's just saying, I need you to do it. And if God sets you up to do this, he is not setting you up to fail. So he calls these men and he calls the people to go outspire the land because he's not calling them to fail. 
but he's building their faith. Such a relational God. Not because he needs to know, but they need to know. Now, um, verse 3, so Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran according to the command of the Lord, all of the men who were the heads of the children of Israel. Now, I'm not going to read all the names because from verse 6 to verse uh, 13 or so or more, God is, uh, God is calling or mentioning all the names, but I do want to mention two. I want to mention two names here. Verse 6 um, is, and from the tribe of Judah, interestingly, from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, uh, and then from verse 8, from the tribe of Ephraim, Hosea, which was eventually called Joshua. And these two men, Caleb and Joshua, we'll find out soon or maybe next week, these are the two men who were able to stand even though the other ten failed or struggled. Oh, there are 12 names. There's no discrepancy here. There's no discrimination here. There's no sense of prioritizing here. It's not like Joshua and Caleb are first off the rank because they're kind of like the top of the league. They're just mingled in the group. But when the test comes, they shine. And we'll get to that. We'll get to that soon. Verse 16. These are the names of the men who Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hosea or Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Now look at verse 17. Then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up this way into the south and go up to the mountain. He wants them to spy out the land. And he tells them to go up on the mountain, presumably so they can see uh, what's, what's going on. <laughs> what, I'm, what I'm beginning to see here, brothers and sisters, is that what God is wanting them to do here is to check out their enemy. To check in and check out what their enemy is all about. Does that sound familiar? Are we not called as Christians to understand to some extent the work of the enemy? Are we not called as Christians to some extent to get up on the mountain and see through the word of God how the enemy works? And all of a sudden we get blindsided and we think, oh, what went on? And then someone reminds us, but that's how the enemy works. And you think, oh, yes. And to know and understand this is how the enemy works puts us a step ahead, so to speak. But more importantly, as we inform ourselves of the word of God, we're able to equip ourselves against his Tricks. This is what the Bible says. Uh, when when uh, Paul is speaking to the Corinthians, he says this. He wants them to he instructs them. I think it was the context of loving the brother who had sinned, and he instructs them to love him and to forgive him. He says this: "Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices." True. Paul is telling the church in Corinth, I want you to do this because we're not naive. We're not ignorant of how the devil works. We know that he's got a plan of action. We know he's going to set out to destroy those that he can. We know that he loves to accuse. We know that he loves to kill. We know that he loves to lie. We know all these things, and he loves to put division amongst brethren. We know that he does all these things. You've got to be aware. And all of a sudden you think to yourself, why am I in this mess? 
Or maybe, maybe because you've been ignorant of his devices. And so Moses goes and says, go and spy out this land, get up on the mountain and look for yourself what they are like. You know, um, I think once this happens, perhaps once this happens and we realise the strength of our enemy, perhaps this is when one of two things can happen. We can become people who act out of the nature of man or the human nature, or we can become people who act out of the nature of faith, the children of God. And when we see the strength of the enemy and what he's trying to do, perhaps this is the time one or the other responses are experienced. Do you become someone who reacts out of the nature of man? Oh, this is all going to get too hard. I can't do this. Why does this happen? It's too difficult. Why is there problems? Or do we act out of the nature of faith that believes God is still Lord? He's called us to it. He's brought us to it. And now he's establishing us in it. And God is working because no matter what they will see, listen carefully, what, what, no matter what they, they, are, they are about to see, God's plan is not going to change. And maybe they expected to see some weak nation. I don't know. Maybe they were hoping they would see a nation that in their own strength, they'd overcome and overpower easily. But no matter what they saw, God's plan wasn't going to change. He wanted them to see and to go up and see the land. Look what it says in verse 18. And to see what the land is like, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, no matter what they saw, God's plan wasn't going to change, but he wanted them to see this. Whether the land they dwell in, sorry, uh, verse, uh, yeah, sorry, verse 19, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit, inhabit are like camps or strongholds, go and have a look. And look at verse 20. Whether the land is rich or poor and whether there are forests there or not. And listen to his advice. Once you've seen all these things and through the eye you've observed and maybe through the eye goes to the heart and maybe you become nervous. Remember, God knows all what's going to happen here. God knows all this. And when you do observe and you do see everything, verse 20, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. The encouragement is be of good courage. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's going to get tough at times, and um, we, we know what it means to, for things to get tough. We know that. But God says this very simple thing, because God can. Yeah, it's one thing if I say to you, be of good courage, and hopefully you're encouraged by that. But it's another thing when God says, be of good courage, be courageous. 
And interestingly, remember, Joshua was part of this. And interestingly, in Joshua chapter 1, when the time is so close to taking the land, after Moses had gone and Joshua was kind of left now to lead the people, God, because this is such good advice, in one chapter, four times, Joshua is reminded of it. Let me just tell you quickly. For example, verse 6, he tells Joshua, Joshua, be strong and of good courage. Verse 7, only be strong and very courageous. Verse 9, be strong and of good courage. And then verse 18, the people tell him, only be strong and of good courage. There's something in this. Brothers and sisters, in the week ahead, be strong and of good courage. You go to verse 21 and 22, listen to what happens here. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as uh, Rehoth near the entrance of Hamath. Verse 22, and they went up through the south and came to Hebron, Ahathman and Shishai and Talmai. The descendants of Anak were there. Now, Hebron was built seven years before Zion in Egypt. That bracket is an interesting one. Uh, maybe it's a conversation for another day. Um, why that's even there is uh, an interesting one. I've got, an, I've got a thought, but that's, enough, that's not for today. But, but before that, it says here, that the people of Anak were there. Now, this is an interesting one. The people of Anak, the, the word Anak is long-necked. So, so the, the, the uh, implication is that they were tall people. They were tall people. And that's what they saw. Now, the history of Anak isn't really solid. We don't know a lot about the history of Anak. And when Israel took over the land eventually, they, and, and they destroyed a lot of the people. They left a few of the people of Anak, the Anakites, which possibly down the track became their descendants, became the Goliath that David fought. Torment. Torment. Now, if that's all, if that's all true, and, and it's quite possible, I'm not saying it's not, it's quite possible. It says something very powerful about anything that we leave unresolved. People of Anak, tall people, long-necked. They left a few of them. One of their descendants was Goliath. It tells us something, an illustration that's very, very powerful. You can try and deal with everything in your life, but if you try, if you choose, if you choose to leave one Anak, if you like, undefeated, one of your sins unresolved, you think, oh, it's okay, it's just one. It's just one. Maybe the people of Israel thought it's just a small, a few people of Anak, just a few Anakites. It's okay. It's going to come back to haunt you. It might grow. It might get really big. It might hurt you. God reveals in order that you can overcome. He doesn't reveal sin so that you can uh, pocket your sin for another day as long as nobody can see it. And so here they saw the people or the Anakites and uh, uh, I think therein began their, the issue for some of them because all of a sudden they were like uh, uh, beginning to see some very tall people that they had to confront. Verse 23, then they came to the valley of Eshkol and there they cut down a branch 
with one cluster of grapes. Look at that. And they carried it between two of them on a pole. They also brought some of the pomegranates and the figs. Brothers and sisters, this isn't, this isn't the local uh, walk to the, uh, the grocery shop. This is a massive, massive, well-grown produce. Now, you know me, I love my garden. I get a lot of my tips from my father-in-law. Even he would be impressed with this, I reckon. That's a, that's a pretty amazing size cluster of grapes. And here they were having to carry it between two people on a pole. The land is good. It's flowing with milk and honey. The land is for God's people, preparing for God's people. But there's a problem. There's the Anakites. Something's in the way of God's promises. Is that not life? Does not our flesh get in the way of God's promises so many times? Does not, does not the behaviour of others interfere and distract us from the promises of God all the time. And so we are need to focus on, remind ourselves on what God is saying and not in the experiences or, or the carnality of man. And so what we see here is they, they, they're um, uh, uh, collecting this, this, this fruit and its abundance. And I want to I uh, make a point of this. The land of abundance. This is the promise of God, isn't it? This is the promise of God. It is a land of abundance, the jubilee. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians, all the promises of God in him are yes and amen to the glory of God through us. This is what God is doing. The promises are great and the promises are yes. The produce, if you like, the fruits of God's promises are great and they are there for us to consume. They are there for us to experience because God has called us to. God is, God is uh, uh, wanting us to eat of this kind of fruits. So let me ask you, what fruit do you eat? When I say fruit in this context, I'm saying, where, where, what's your hope? What's your promise? What's your purpose? What's your security? What fruit are you eating in life? What are you consuming, hoping that this will be the very thing that will get you through life? I tell you the truth, brothers and sisters, there is no greater fruit, no greater produce, no greater thing to eat than the very promise of Christ. That is Christ himself and all that he declares. Remember that beautiful passage in Isaiah? For those of you that may not be eating from the fruit of Jesus, from those of you that think that you can find fruit somewhere else and you can find stability and, 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 and foundation somewhere else, remember that beautiful passage in Isaiah when the prophet saw that people were doing that same thing and he addressed them and he said this to them, you that have no money, come buy and eat. You don't have to have money. God is just asking you to believe. Come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk. Without money and without price, it just requires your life, having faith in Jesus. Why do you spend money on what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Well, here you go. There's the cluster of grapes carried by two people. That's the abundance. Eat the fruit that God is giving. This is the very promise of God. You know, it's so true, and the Bible says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. You taste this morning? Those of you that haven't tasted, will you taste? 
Are you still satisfied with the fruit of your life and, and what you think is good fruit? And God is reaching out this morning and saying, come, eat the fruit that truly satisfies the soul. You can have your own bread, but it's not going to satisfy you. And here these men were, were carrying back, were carrying back this beautiful cluster of grapes and pomegranates and, and figs. I can only just imagine the size of this that produce as well. Because that's God. God's promises are abundant and satisfying. And then finally, for this morning, we'll read verse, uh, verse 24. The place was called the Valley of Fishkol because of the cluster which the men of Israel cut down there and they returned from spying out the land 40 days. I just love God's word. It's, it's just consistent all over the place. It's just consistent all over the place. And here we have another 40 days. We're, we're familiar with 40. 40 is often uh, indicated in the Bible as trial or testing or proving. We know Moses, when he fled Egypt early on, was out in the desert 40 years. He was living his life before he went back to Egypt, doing what he had to do. We know uh, uh, Goliath, interestingly, Goliath was mocking the people of God before David came for 40 days. We know, of course, Israel were in the wilderness 40 years. And, of course, we know Jesus was in the wilderness himself for 40 days. But here they were and watching, observing, but the idea is being tested, being proved. What are they going to do? What are they going to do with what they now know? What are they going to do with what they saw and with what they carried? And what are they going to do with what began to work on their minds and their hearts? And that's what we're going to see next week. Are they going to respond, if you like, with the nature of man? Or are they going to respond with the nature of faith? What are we going to do? Oh, all the promises of God are yes and amen. We know that. We say that. We claim that as Christians. And all the promises of God doesn't mean that we're exempt from trials and, 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 and proving, so to speak. But when all is seen, what will we do? And I pray, brothers and sisters, that uh, what we do is strive to uh, respond with the nature of faith, knowing that our victory, victory is granted to them that fight not with the flesh, that fight with faith because God has called us to do this. And we can wrestle things out in the flesh and we can respond in the flesh and we can plan according to the flesh. That is our human nature, our human way. Or we can do these things by the nature of faith and see victory granted to us. Because that's what God has called us to. It takes faith. It takes faith. And I pray this morning that we can remember uh, our Lord, our sovereign Lord, who sends us out into his kingdom. That he's there. 
upholding, carrying, promising to his children. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word and thank you for what you teach us this morning. I pray, Lord, that uh, we are all able to, me included, we're all able to learn and lean on only your promises. That as we do what we have to do responsibly, we trust in the power and the faithfulness and the promises of God. You are good and you are faithful. Bless my brothers and sisters as they head into their day and into their week. Bring to remembrance this word of encouragement and their faith is strengthened. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.